Okay, please turn to the book of Acts. The Acts of the Apostles. I'll be reading chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Let's pray. Father, I have a twofold prayer that we would see clearly what that meant that we just read. And that we would hunger for the influence of the Holy Spirit upon our everyday lives. To be empowered by Him to fight sin and to be bold to evangelize and bold to minister to other believers in Jesus' name. Amen. This is week five in the series titled, The Person and the Work of the Holy Spirit. This morning's title is, What is the Baptism in the Holy Spirit? One of the most influential movements in modern church history that began in America and has spread throughout the world over the last hundred years in six years or so, is Pentecostalism. And I'm going to connect with that a little bit, this other term this morning. There's some similarities here. In the charismatic movement. The wind of the Spirit blew upon me in 1981 and I found myself born again. And, like all believers, unless they're on a desert island, they will find themselves in a local church which became my church home for the next ten years. And that church happened to have sprung up out of Pentecostalism. Through most of the early 1980s, I spent almost every Saturday evangelizing, witnessing to people at Redondo Beach Pier or in retirement homes. And when I would find, oh, this person is a Christian... Their profession of faith in Jesus seems to be genuine. They're churchgoers. Then, I wouldn't just go on to the next person. I'd go on to stage two. I had an agenda. Okay, awesome. We both love Jesus. Next question to him. Have you received the baptism in the Holy Spirit with the evidence of speaking in other tongues? And I'd want that to happen to them. That mentality came down from historic Pentecostalism. Pentecostalism is that movement that began in Topeka, Kansas, and then a revival in 1903 or 6 or somewhere around there came to Los, 1906, came to Los Angeles. And it's called the Azusa Street Revival, where for three years, it was just really popping. And people were coming from all over the place to experience whatever was going on. And most of these people would come and they would experience this phenomenon of speaking in other tongues. They'd go back home to their churches and it would spread or they would get kicked out, one of the two. And then eventually, because so many people were finding that their Methodist church or their Baptist church or whatever it is, would not have them anymore, denominations would slowly spring up around the doctrines that are developing out of Pentecostalism, like the Assemblies of God or the Four Square Movement and many other Pentecostal denominations. One of the very central doctrines of Pentecostalism is that the New Testament term, the baptism in the Holy Spirit, refers to a distinct and a separate act of God from new birth or from salvation. Salvation or coming to saving faith by new birth is one thing. And then 
The baptism in the Holy Spirit is another thing, but what is really key for Pentecostalism is this term subsequence. Because it teaches that the norm is that not only is it distinct from new birth, but that it normally happens with a time gap between new birth. Five minutes or thirty years. Or never to genuine believers. In other words, the first blessing is to come to faith in Christ. You are saved. You are eternally saved. You're in the body of Christ. But there's a second blessing to be had called the baptism in the Holy Spirit. And sadly, the teaching goes, many never get it. They never ask for it. And so they have not received it. And the sign early on in some debate within Pentecostal since that time, <coughs> but the, the foundational teaching was the sign that of whether you have received the baptism, the being engulfed in or submerged in the Spirit, was the evidence of you speaking in other tongues. As the lingo goes, have you received the baptism in the Holy Spirit with the evidence of speaking in other tongues since you believe? Okay. Now, now another term is charismatic or the charismatic movement. Come from the, the Greek word for gifts or giftings. You see in 1 Corinthians, the gifts of the Spirit. So the charismatic movement, which sprung up in the 1960s and 1970s, particularly within non-Pentecostal mainline denominations and or Roman Catholicism. So within Methodist churches, Lutheran churches, Roman Catholic churches, Baptist churches, there was this movement happening that would kind of infiltrate the churches called the charismatic movement. It was a renewal movement. And what they were essentially saying is that for so many seemingly dry Christians, there's so much more to be had in the Holy Spirit. And with this movement, many church-going members of churches, people would really experience a rejuvenation of their love for Christ, of their love for the Bible, of a pursuing of holiness. And often it would come with speaking in other tongues. So the result of the charismatic movement was that there are lots of just humdrum so-called Christians would find their life really changed in their passion for Christ. Claiming that it's because of the second blessing, the baptism in the Holy Spirit. All right, let me summarize at the core, at the core of Pentecostal. Let me kind of be a Pentecostal for a minute and try to show why. The, the, here, here's, here's the basic foundational arguments. Open up to the book of Acts. And as you open up, to the book of Acts, and we're going to start reading chapter 1. Know this. Jesus has risen from the dead. He has been appearing and teaching the apostles and many more disciples for five weeks. They're encountering the resurrected Jesus. These people are believers. They're born again. They are indwelt with the Spirit. And then in verses 4 and 5 of chapter 1, notice, Jesus says to them, but wait for the promise of the Father. Which He said, you heard from Me, for John baptized with water, but you will, in the future here now, you're already born again, and you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Okay, see it? Already born again. Spirit and dwell. And then Jesus says, wait, time's going to go by, and then something second is going to happen called the baptism in the Holy Spirit. But wait for this. There's a time gap between saving faith and Holy Spirit baptism for empowerment which Jesus makes clear in verse 8. But you will receive 
power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Okay, so he says that Jesus ascends to the Father. All these born-again people go to sleep that night, saved. They wake up, saved. They're believers. They do whatever they do the next day, and they go to bed again. And they wake up the next day, and they do whatever they do, and they go to bed again. And on and on for probably ten days. They're saved. Then you come to chapter 2, starting with verse 1 of Acts. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they, probably the 120, were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. The time gap is clear. You're born again. Later, week and a half later, subsequently, this experience. And so for Pentecostals, that's the model. The theology is that is not just what happened, but that is normative. That's the norm of how it normally does happen. New birth and then baptism in the Holy Spirit are two separate experiences. And there, this is Pentecostalism, and there are many people who have the Holy Spirit, who have been born again by the Spirit. He lives in them but will live and die and never experience the baptism in the Holy Spirit. That's why when I'm street witnessing, great, I believe you, you're saved, I'm saved, we're in the body of Christ, didn't doubt it. But have you received the baptism in the Holy Spirit? No. Ask for it, Christian. If you will, Jesus will give it to you. That's how it goes. Oh, now, to reaffirm that, just flip over and keep going to Acts chapter 8. Philip, a deacon, goes up north about 30 miles or so to the region of Samaria. We know about the Samaritans, right? Not Jews. Half-breed heretics. Jews hated the Samaritans and vice versa. And he preaches the gospel to them. Okay, now notice in verse 12 of chapter 8. But... As Philip's preaching, but when they believed, they believed the gospel. When they believed, Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Okay, so there they are. They're Christians, confirmed believers with the ordinance. Of baptism. Yes, we affirm you're true believers. So here they are. They're born again. They believe. You'll just keep reading them. Start, see verse 14? It goes on to say, Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for these Samaritan believers that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Because He, the Holy Spirit, had not yet fallen on any of them. But they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John laid their hands on them and received the Holy Spirit. So, there it is again. This time gap. Born again in probably at least four days later. You've got to get two, back to Jerusalem a couple days and then get them back to Samaria. You've got four-day lapse of time here. They're, they're believers. They baptized them. They believed the Gospel. And then, the Holy Spirit falls upon them. Okay, just flip over now to Acts chapter 10. 
You know the story? Peter's got to get the vision, get kicked in the head by God. No, Peter, do what I tell you to do. Go to the Gentiles' house, Cornelius. And Cornelius gets his house packed with people. And Peter preaches the gospel of Jesus to these non-Jewish, Gentile, God-fearers. And you pick up in chapter 10, verse 44. Peter's been preaching, okay? And then we pick it up, verse 44. While Peter was still saying these things, something happened. The Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the Word. Now notice this. And the believers from among the circumcised, that means the Jewish Christians, who had come with Peter, they're there in the room watching this, they were stunned. That's, that's what thamazo, amazed, means. The, those ones who came with Peter, they were amazed. Why? Because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. Because they knew this. Why? They were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. And then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people, non-Jews, who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have on Pentecost? Then you turn to Acts 19, and it's 20 years later or so, and now you're at the far reaches, away from Jerusalem in Ephesus, and Paul runs into these guys who know the message of John the Baptist, and you pick up in chapter 2 of 19 of Acts. Paul says to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. We've only heard about John the Baptist, not Jesus. And so then in verse 5, On hearing this, Paul preached to them the clarity of Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them. And they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. Alright, so, the basic Pentecostal, and for many charismatics, but not all, theology goes that, there it is. See, the Holy Spirit's coming upon or, or drowning you with baptism is this one-time event, but it is a distinct second blessing for believers. And many believers get it. And many believers don't get it. Okay? Am I pretty clear so far? There we go. All right. So now, let's do this. Let's go back and ask this question. What does this term, the baptism in the Holy Spirit, mean in the New Testament? First, the term, the baptism in the Holy Spirit, or with the Holy Spirit, means the same thing here. Okay? That, and it, it just depends how you translate, it's always the same Greek preposition. Okay? In or with the Holy Spirit. That term is used only seven times times in the New Testament. And really only four. Because four of the times that it's used refers to the exact same incident. In Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all record John the Baptist saying, but there's one coming after me whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He, referring to Jesus, will baptize you in the Holy Spirit. But it's all one. So apart from those four, there's only three other times in the New Testament where the term baptism in the Holy Spirit is used. Two of them are in the book of Acts. We just read one in chapter 1 where Jesus says, wait for the promise for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized in or with the Holy Spirit. Not many days from now. And then the other time in the Acts of the Apostles is in chapter 11 where, where, where Peter is explaining to the Jerusalem leadership, because he has to, they're pretty 
lot of them not happy. He went into a Gentile house. He says, I couldn't help it. God made me. And as he's explaining, he says about what we just read, and the Holy Spirit fell on everyone in Cornelius' house. Later on, Peter explains it this way in verse 16 of chapter 11. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with or in the Holy Spirit. So Peter clearly understands that to be the same thing of what happened with the Gentiles in Cornelius' That's six times. There's only one other time, and it's in the teaching part of the New Testament, the epistles, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. The Apostle Paul writes, For in one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we're all made to drink of one spirit. Okay. There's ESV. The New American Standard Bible, the King James Version, the New King James Version, the NIV, the RSV, all translate this verse this way. By one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Not in one spirit, but they translate it by one spirit. And that translation, by one spirit, allows Pentecostals to argue that this verse here of the Apostle Paul is not at all referring to the baptism in the Holy Spirit like the other six. Okay, I'm slow here, okay? You with me? They're saying it's not referring to that. They're saying the other six passages are clear. They refer to the Lord Jesus baptizing people in the Holy Spirit, but not what Paul says here. In other words, if I were to baptize somebody, then I am baptizing him in the element of water. Jesus, in the other six occurrences that we saw in Acts and in the Gospels, in those occurrences, it's clear that Jesus is baptizing people in the element of the Holy Spirit. They say that's not what Paul is saying here. He's not. Jesus isn't baptizing because it says by one Spirit. By the Holy Spirit. Meaning, the Holy Spirit is the one holding you and dunking you in the element of the body of Christ. Are you following me? No. Okay. No. This is a no, right? Okay. In all the other six occurrences, the four in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and the other two in the book of Acts. The term baptism in the Holy Spirit is clear that it refers to the Lord Jesus doing the act of baptizing persons in the element of water. Oh, no, not water. In the element of the Holy Spirit. Got it? They say, Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians, Jesus isn't doing that. The Holy Spirit Himself is doing the baptizing in the element of the body of Christ. So it's not referring to the same thing. Now the reason that's important for them to say, because Paul, the way he writes in 1 Corinthians, if he meant the same thing as the other six passages about baptism in the Spirit, if he meant that same thing, then it would be hard for Pentecostals to hold on to their doctrine of subsequence that these things being born again or saving faith is one thing and that usually there's a time gap between that and the experience of being baptized in the Spirit. Because Paul writes to the Corinthians it's just, he just seems to assume this are you saved? Oh, if you are, Paul assumes then you've all been baptized in the Holy Spirit. Go back, listen to what I said on the recording 20 times and you might get it. Because I don't know how to say it 
any clearer. He just seems to assume if you are truly in Christ, no matter who you are, whether you go to John MacArthur's cessationist church, or you go to a Pentecostal church and you both are born again, Paul assumes, I don't care what you say about it, you've been baptized in the Holy Spirit. That's what I'm saying. Okay? And you can, but from the English translations of the New American Standard Bible, NIV, King James Version, you can see how they could get that from those translations. The Holy Spirit. You've been baptized by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has come. Caused you to be born again, and He put you in the body of Christ. That's what Paul's saying. They would say. But I don't think you can argue that way very strongly from the Greek text. In the original, what Paul wrote in Greek, it is almost identical to the other six passages. And the key, because remember what we're dealing with, Baptism in the Spirit, with the Holy Spirit. Baptism, same word, and then you got this preposition, and this prepositional phrase, in the Holy Spirit, are exactly the same. In Paul, as they are in the others. Same preposition, the Greek word, in, meaning in, or with. And since we know It's clear in the context in the other six instances of baptism in the Spirit, we know that Jesus is the one performing the baptism in the Holy Spirit. It's appropriately translated that way. Then it seems like it ought to be translated that way here. Saying, in other words, we have all been baptized in... And it just the, the assumption is just this, implicitly, by Jesus in the Holy Spirit, and thus into one body. And so, the English Standard Version, I think, gets it dead right. When they translate it, for in the element of, in one Spirit. We were all baptized implicitly by Jesus into the body of Christ. So my point is this. This is what I'm saying. Paul is referring to the same baptism in the Holy Spirit as the other six times the, 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 the term is used. And now down the road of Christianity, when he writes to the Corinthians, he assumes... If you're a Christian, if the Holy Spirit dwells in you through new birth, then you are also baptized in the Holy Spirit. Okay, let's think. That brings us to the question then. How are we to understand this time gap in the book of Acts? Which is there. So here's my view. I'm trying to understand it. First, I think it is true that new birth and baptism in the Holy Spirit are not the same thing. I think that the baptism in the Holy Spirit is a distinct act from new birth by the Holy Spirit. Because I want to deal with the Bible. And, and in Acts chapters 1 and 2, I think it's clear to me that these disciples and apostles are already believers. They believe. They have saving faith. Okay, And then something different than that happens later called the baptism in the Holy Spirit. But here's the larger picture of what I think is happening in the book of Acts. When you come to chapter 2, in the day of Pentecost, and you're all in the upper room, that what is happening there is this public manifestation of the transition between the old covenant era and the new covenant era. 
If you have not heard last week's sermon, just go back for more clarity on those terms. But this is that public transition happening. During the old covenant era, the Holy Spirit was not poured out upon all God's people. And by God's people, I don't mean the Jews. I mean some of the Jews. So, remember last week, with those who actually were indwelt by the Spirit with new birth, the remnant of the Jews. I mean, in the Old Testament, they were not all baptized with the Spirit, but they were all born again. You with me? Only some of them had the fullness or the baptism or the drowning in the Spirit for ministry, like a Moses and like prophets and like some priest and like, you read the book of Judges, and they had that type of empowerment, but not all God's genuine spiritual people. Remember Moses. He had the Spirit. He was baptized in the Spirit. And he's also making stupid decisions like doing all this judging by himself. And his father-in-law finally said, will not you wake up? And he says, okay, he does. And God t- helps him out. And he takes some of the Spirit that is upon Moses and puts it upon 70 of the elders of Israel. So they can help him with that empowerment to do this ministry. And, and then you remember, because they got the Spirit now, they're going back into their differing camps and prophesying and Joshua sees it and he's all ticked off and Moses says, Joshua, calm down. I wish all God's people would prophesy. I wish the Spirit were upon all of God's people. Remember that? And you can hear a tinge of prophecy there. And, and as the Old Testament And time goes by on the timeline of the Old Covenant period. Prophets are coming and starting more clearly to even foretell or prophesy of what's going to happen in the New Covenant era where God's Spirit will be poured out. Not just on a couple leaders here or there, but upon all God's people. Slaves and free girls and boys. That's the promise. Okay, So that's sitting there in the Bible. John the Baptist comes on the scene. That's him. This guy, referring to Jesus, he's the one who's going to baptize in the Holy Spirit. He goes to the cross, pays the price, he rises from the dead, he teaches for five weeks, and he ascends. And then in Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, What is happening is the fulfillment of those prophecies. It's a public manifestation that the fulfillment is here. Not just upon the twelve apostles. Upon every believer. That's what it's trying to say. If there were 400, it would have had a 400. If there's only 120 that are meeting in that room, then that's what God's going to do. But the point is, He fell Upon all of them. And so that's why Peter that very day, he's explaining it to the masses of his fellow Jews as he's preaching the gospel. Saying, this is it. Chapter 2 of Acts, Peter's preaches. Here it is. For these people are not drunk, because the Holy Spirit was doing stuff to them that made it seem weird stuff was going on as it's spilling out into the temple yard or something. And he said, they're not drunk. Because <laughs> they're hearing this, how can they all speak our differing languages? Because this is Pentecost and people or Jews from all over the diaspora are there. They're not drunk as you suppose. It's only 9 a.m. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, I will pour out My Spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions. And your old men shall dream dreams. Even on male slaves and female slaves. In those days I will pour out My Spirit. And they shall prophesy. Okay, so what we see 
on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 in that upper room is that these 120 believers who are already born again, they received the baptism in the Holy Spirit as a subsequent experience to them. Why? That's the question. I think it's because of the particular time they lived on the redemptive historical timeline we talked about last week. In other words, just what I think, let me just interpret what I think Jesus is doing. That He's saying, wait in Jerusalem. I can do it today. There's a reason why I'm doing what I'm doing. Wait in Jerusalem until I baptize you. Until I send the Holy Spirit with power. Why? Wait in Jerusalem so that I'm going to make this a public sign of clarity about this historical transition from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant promise of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And Peter gets up that day and says, Yes, this is it. That's what this is. We get it now. It's the fulfillment of those promises. And since that transition period, AD 33, okay, the book of Acts, since that time, the experience of new birth and the baptism in the Holy Spirit are happening pretty much simultaneously, is my argument. They happen at the same time. Pentecost... These born-again guys wait in Jerusalem and then subsequently they receive the baptism in the Holy Spirit. That was an anomaly, not the norm. That had its purpose that is not the norm for the church age. For the public show of this is it. The transition and the fulfillment has happened. The King has come and He has sent forth this which you see and hear. Confirming the message of the gospel. Are you with me? Okay, you should be asking the next question then. What about the other accounts in the book of Acts? Okay, so you turn to chapter 8. Okay, I heard what you said, Joe, but when you go to chapter 8, and these people there, they become believers, they're saved, but not simultaneously, like you just said, Joe, but probably four days later, the Holy Spirit falls upon them as they did on Pentecost. So what's going on? Here's my answer. The context. That's what's going on. The context. What is Luke up to in the way that he structures his narrative of the book of the Acts of the Apostles. Luke's purpose is to show throughout, this is one of the main themes, his purpose is to show that Christianity is not only Jewish. Salvation in the message of Christ, the Messiah who comes from the Jews, is not just for the Jews. It comes from them, comes from the center of Jerusalem, and then it goes outward. Now remember, Dr. Luke was a very close companion of the Apostle Paul. So therefore, Luke knew firsthand the central Tension and division within the early church, particularly the Jewish segment of the church, about the question of the place of non-Jews in the body of Christ. And that's why we see at the beginning of Luke's narrative this larger structural table of contents of what he's going to be doing. Now, Jesus said it, but he's always selective when he's using. 
Right? So there's a lot more that happened than what Luke's going to record. What's he doing? What's the author Luke doing? He takes what Jesus said, and I think it's operating as a main... Here's the themes going to be flowing throughout the story I'm going to tell of the early church. And that's what Jesus said in chapter 1, verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. And in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And so Luke's got this idea where he's going with his narrative of Acts. The Jews centered in Jerusalem first. And from there spreading out to the Jewish community. And then to the Samaritans and then to the bacon eating disgusting Gentiles well Luke doesn't think that anymore because he is Gentile but he understands the problem and the tension within the early church as he lays this out and so 120 in the upper room on the day of Pentecost. Jesus said, wait. They waited. And Jesus baptized them in the Holy Spirit with visible evidence that flowed out to the non-Jews that gave Peter a place to preach. And so, the Spirit and the fulfillment of the prophecies came to pass. And later that day, thousands more came in to the flooding, the outpouring, the waters of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, get it. They were all Jews. There's no Gentiles there. This is Jews. God's chosen people. Then, in Acts, in the subsequent outpourings there that He lets us know about, again, one thing that happens, every believer in those instances are baptized in the Spirit. Not some of them. All of them, just like on the day of Pentecost. This is what I think is happening. In short, and I'll try to unfold a little bit more. Pentecost is that big sign, the fulfillment of the age from the Old Covenant era into the New Covenant era. The other accounts are essentially the same thing. It's just Pentecost extended. Let's work through that. Remember the apostles, at least the eleven now. If not, you count the twelfth. The apostles were all part of the 120, but there's a lot more than just apostles there. All the believers. Jesus' mom is there. Okay. They're all believers in Jerusalem, and they're all baptized in the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. That day... Months later, at least months later, if not a year or more later, Peter, John, James, the son of Zebedee, and Bartholomew, the leaders of the church and other Jews, still had no clue that salvation of Jesus could go to non-Jews. They're still clueless about it. You would ask them then, hey, let's go preach this to Samaria. They're having a problem. What? Samaritans? Half-breed? Only take Moses? Heretical in their theology? Get saved? No way. This is what's happening. Okay. How about, how about Gentile God-fearers? Well, yeah, but see, they won't even convert to, to Judaism. They, they like Judaism, but they're not going to go all the way and convert. They're still Gentile. Them get saved? No way. So you got chapter 8 for the Samaritans. you got chapter 10 for the God-fearing Gentiles. Or just the pagan Gentiles in the far reaches of the empire, in Ephesus, in Asia Minor. <laughs> so we get chapter 19. 
Early on, see, the Jews, the apostles, Jesus' personal sent ones, don't get it. And so the subsequent visible outpourings of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts, in chapter 8, in chapter 10, in chapter 19, are repeats of chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, the day of Pentecost. They're repeats in order to show the Jewish leadership of the Jewish church the apostles and the elders, to make it clear to them that other groups besides Jews are being accepted to salvation into the body of Christ. And they're not second-class citizens. It's to show the same visible outpouring of God the Holy Spirit that came upon you at Pentecost is coming upon these other non-Jewish groups. Leaders, Get it into your head. And that's Luke's structure of the book. These themes go throughout. So when you turn to chapter 8, Philip, a deacon, non-leader, he goes there, or however Jesus got him there, he worked with Philip in some strange ways. huh? So he's in Samaria. He preaches to, from a Jewish standpoint, disgusting, hated Samaritans, the gospel of Jesus. I imagine Jesus somehow let him, you got to do it, just like he's going to do to Peter later. And they believe it. <laughs> they believe. And then days elapse. And then we read. And then Peter and John finally come down and laid hands on them. And they received the Holy Spirit. So this is what I think happens. Because there's no leaders in Samaria. No elders from the Jerusalem church or apostles. So, Jesus doesn't baptize them. He waits until they get the leaders from Jerusalem to come down. And so now that they're there, particularly Peter and John, then He falls on them in the Spirit and they see it and they just, oh my gosh, I guess God's accepting the Samaritans in it. Because now He wants the leaders, like Peter and John, to go back to Jerusalem and say, guys, we witnessed it. What are we going to do? Not baptize them? God baptized them in the Spirit. How are we? Okay, so that's why they're baptized. They're accepted. And they're not to be second-hand citizens in the kingdom of God. And so then you go to chapter 10, and you know the story. I mean, God had to just smack Peter upside the head again and again. I'm telling you, go to the Gentile house when he comes and eat his food, you kosher-eating Jewish person. But I've never done that. Leviticus says I can't eat that as a Jew. Well, the Lord told him, that part time is over. Go do it. Preach the gospel. Okay, so God sets it all up. They come and get him, and he goes to Cornelius' house, and we read what happened there as he's preaching the Holy Spirit. Fell on all the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter. They were amazed. So there's Peter. Okay, now here's a question. But there, there's no time gap. Jesus didn't need to have a time gap. He didn't need to say, okay, they're born again, let's baptize them, and then... Let's have a time gap so we can make sure some leaders of the Jerusalem church get over here. Peter was already there. Peter's the one preaching and with a lot of fellow Christian Jews with him. So he didn't need a time gap. As he preached, the Holy Spirit fell and they were hearing them speak in tongues and extolling God. Now, when Peter got back to Jerusalem... And trying to have leadership council, lots of other Jewish Christians just sneaking their way in because they're very angry that Peter would go into a Gentile house. Very angry the idea that Gentiles, staying Gentiles, could be saved and accepted into the body. But Peter just says, look, let me just explain. And they gave him the floor and he explained everything that happened. God gave him a vision. Eat. See the pig and you, you see that raven that eats other animals and you see the lobster tail. Eat it, Peter. 
Okay, God got his message. He, Peter explains all that, and you pick up in chapter 11, verse 16 and 18, and this is what he explains to the Jerusalem church and the Jerusalem leadership. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, here it is, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them in Cornelius' house, the Gentiles, as He gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard this, or heard these things, they finally shut up. And they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also. God has granted repentance that leads to life. And then years later, you get this one more account in Ephesus, verse 6 of chapter 19. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, all of them, all twelve of them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. So, these other accounts outside of Acts chapter 2, day of Pentecost, what I'm arguing is this. They are extensions of Pentecost in order to make clear to the Jewish church's leadership that yes, Jesus baptizes these non-Christian groups in the same Holy Spirit, engulfing them into the same and only body of Christ. They are included. So, the Pentecostal theology, the idea of a time gap between new birth and baptism in the Holy Spirit as to be the norm, I don't think so. But what we're seeing in Acts was an anomaly of Pentecost in the time period on the timeline of redemptive history. And that Pentecost being extended into Acts chapter 8, 10, and 19. There is not a two-tier Christianity of haves and have-nots. There are not, in Christianity, all these genuine believers who are all born again and they're all going to heaven, but there's the super-spiritual believers who went on and receive the baptism in the Holy Spirit and have a super spiritual power that other believers don't. But I think as Paul would later write to the Corinthians, all believers, you're belie- you're, you, you, you're genuinely you're in Christ, then you've all been baptized in the Holy Spirit. If he came here today and says, every one of you who has actually been born again, you have actually truly come to saving faith, two weeks ago sermon, Born by the Spirit. If that's you, you are and have been also baptized in the Holy Spirit. Okay. Now before I close, which I'm doing now in the next four or five minutes, I just want to make a couple things clear so I'm not misheard. Do not hear me saying that I disdain any fellow believer's experiences. I haven't even said anything about their experiences this morning, if you're listening carefully. Do not think that I don't believe, because I do believe, that thousands upon thousands of people in the context of Pentecostalism and the charismatic movement have had experiences with God in those contexts. See, when people's personal testimonies is that they have experienced a renewed, invigorated passion for Jesus, for the Bible, for worship, for the fruit of the Spirit, for holiness, for evangelism, and they've, it's happened in the context of that cultural thing called Pentecostalism or the charismatic movement 
I am not at all challenging their personal experience. If you hear me close, I haven't done any of that so far. Okay, but this is what I'm saying. That the experiences of us Christians, of being baptized in the Holy Spirit, of sanctification, of being filled with the Spirit, whatever those experiences are that we actually experience, and God has His right to do to us, okay, I'm saying that those experiences are one thing. But, the interpretation of those experiences, in other words, what we say they refer to biblically, that's a whole other topic. Following me up? It's another thing. In other words, what I'm saying is to call these Holy Spirit experiences the second distinct act of God, a second blessing called the baptism in the Holy Spirit down the road of my Christianity where I was saved before, but now I just my whole life has changed with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I'm just saying to, that is what is wrong. To say it that way is biblically inaccurate. The idea that there are two stages of Christianity. I just don't think it's biblical. Now, I think it is undeniable that many people who were church members, professing Christians for years, and then got swept up into the charismatic movement, and in the midst of that, experienced a newfound joy, passion for Christ and for the Bible. I think just watching life, being a rational person, that that just seems to be obviously true. Now, then what's happening? Okay, here's Joe's. I think more than this, but let me just give the two big things that I think happen. One is this. Often, as this would happen with people, just a humdrum Christian life and then the charismatic movement comes or they go to revival meetings or something like that, is that they, they hear in the context of church something different. It's dealt, it's, it, it's given to them in a different way than their just very week after week formal Christianity. And in the midst of it, something happens to many of these people. It changes their lives. Their, their heart towards Christ is just different now. And it's filled with an excitement that for years as a church-going person, they never knew. And I think what happens to many of those people, or what it is that has happened, is that they became Christians. Or is that, for many, not all of them, for many of these people, what happened is they got born again. That's what happened to them. And now, but now they're taught in the midst of the movement, no, 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 you didn't get born again. You're already a Christian. You've been a church member for 28 years. Were you lying when you said that you believe that Jesus is this Savior who was raised from the dead and bore your sin? No, I wasn't lying. Then you were always a Christian. No, what happened to you? You got baptized in the Holy Spirit. And so, okay, I guess you know better. And they go away, and that's how they tell their story. That's what I think happens. Now, there's one other thing. I think real, genuine believers uh, get caught up into differing movements, Pentecostalism and or charismatic movements, and all the differing forms over the years. I think that happens. They get caught up, and they actually do experience something deeper than they've ever experienced before in their personal relationship with God and the Holy Spirit. Spirit that just rejuvenated in a passion that seemed to be laying dormant. And what I think has happened to a lot of them is that, yes, God used those instances to fill them again and to refill them with the Holy Spirit. And to that subject, we come next week. So as we close now, though, singing, and I hope, 
by the Holy Spirit. Keep in mind the admonition of the Apostle Paul that I'm going to quote in a second. But just think about I think this has got to be going on in Paul's mind. What do many people do when they go to a bar? Give me a shot of whiskey. They got a purpose. You know, give me another one. The goal isn't the taste of the whiskey. Their goal is to be affected by the whiskey. Paul tells us, as we're going to begin singing, and do not get drunk with wine. Or affected. Don't be pursuing that. But be pursuing getting affected. He says, drunkenness is debauchery. But, but instead of that, be being filled, not with alcohol, but with the Holy Spirit. Addressing one another, as we're going to do in a moment, with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Let's do it, baby.